Psalm 102. Um, do you love the fact that last week we talked about what Psalm? Do you remember? Psalm 103. And so this week, obviously, logically, we're doing Psalm 102. How many type A or Enneagram ones are in the room that are losing their minds every time I, thank you? Yeah, okay. Sorry, but not sorry. It's great. I love to kind of shake it up. Yeah, um, if you haven't been here in weeks past, we're not really going in an order. You've figured that out by now. Um, the way God did this thing when, when this thing got compiled and I wrote it is he just kind of would group them in these weird ways. And I'd be like kind of writing and typing and laughing, thinking all the people are going to lose their minds because this is out of order. But I hope you see that there is a thread. And this week, the Psalms that you covered really were about all different places that we are in our lives. And at the same time, we are called to worship him. And, and that can be hard. And I think we're going to see that in Psalm 102 is that our psalmist is in a very difficult place. Um, before we get into it, though, I, I wanted to tell you, I, I, was thinking about, I was thinking about a time when, um, when I maybe didn't feel these exact same things because some of his words are really, they're, they're pretty gritty. But I, I was thinking, like, this person seems brokenhearted. Did you feel that from this one? He, he seems brokenhearted, and in fact, the superscript before you start the psalm says, a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaints before the Lord. And you know, um, this psalm is the only one in the entire Psalter that has a superscript that tells us a, some kind of clue about what the author was actually going through. This is it. And so I found it interesting that this was important enough that we understand that he's faint and he's pouring out his complaints, he's heart broken. And, and so it drew me to a memory that I had, and I've talked about it before, um, of, of, of Colorado. You know, I always tell you guys, like, that's my, that's my place, right? Like, that's my special place. That's like the landscape, you know, for me. Like, when I think about, I mean, some people are beach people. Sorry, I'll pray for y'all. But then there's us mountain people. That, that every time we think about what the most amazing, majestic, beautiful display of who God is, where you feel closer to him, not just because of elevation, but also because it's just amazing for the mount, mountains, for me. And so ever since I was a little kid, I think I was brainwashed. I think that was part of it. Like ever since I was a little kid, we would go and spend our summers in Summit County, Colorado. And so we, of course, then, being good parents, also brainwashed our children. So our kids, every summer, that's where we go. And so they know this, right? Like, this is kind of their deal, too. But the thing about Colorado over the last several years, if you've visited many times in the summer especially, you've noticed some changes. And I've talked about them before. And, but but, it, but it, to me, as I'm thinking about being heartbroken, I'm thinking about, like, Colorado, the landscape is just my heart. And to see what's happening and what has been happening for the last 20 years is, is heartbreaking. So every time... We start rolling into the twisty, turny, you know, mountainous roads as we're entering Summit County. You see it. And it's these amazing lodgepole pines that have been there for bazillions of years, right? And they're dying. And they're dying by the millions. And it's been going on since 1996. And what's happening is there's this epidemic, and it's a pine beetle. And this beetle, this tiny little insect, is destroying landscapes that have been there forever. Landscapes that people like me go to see, to be near, right? I looked up some of the facts about the pine beetle epidemic that's going on in Colorado. I mentioned it started in 1996. It's covered um, 3.4 million acres of forest land is being destroyed by this beetle. And there's nothing they can do about it. There's no way to stop it. 
Vail, Colorado, will eventually, when it's all said and done, lose 80% of the trees in Vail. 80%. There's fire danger. There's deadfall danger. You know that. Like, don't stand under a big dead tree. I, I learned that kind of sometimes because I do that. And there's watershed problems. There's habitat issues. And the thing I think that, that is the hardest for people like me who go to Colorado, and we, you, you drive in and you see that the trees are just are dead. But then when you see how they have to clear them, you see what has to happen by the Forest Service is they have to go and they have to take them down and they put them in these big burn piles. And so as you're going to all your favorite places and on these hikes, you see these piles of dead trees and it's just, it's bald and it's barren and it's dead and it's ruddy where it used to be lush and it's heartbreaking. I think about this psalm in that way. I think the psalmist is, is showing us his landscape his view, what he sees. You know, we're in, we're in the midst of things that are really painful. Don't you think our view is probably limited, but really, honestly, there's not a lot we feel like we can do about it at the time, right? Like we are so hyper-focused on, on what is within our view that we forget that there are other things going on outside of it. That's how I think Psalm 102 is. Well, we're going to look at it in three parts, okay? We're going to look at it in, in the first section is, is about honesty. And you're going to see the psalmist is very honest and to the point where it's kind of like, whoa, ease up. <laughs> what a, anyway, he's really honest, verses 1 through 11. And then the second part is we're going to see this orientation. And I'll explain that in a minute. That's verses 12 through 20, 22. And then lastly, which is one of the things I love about the psalms, is you see the, the, the shift, you know, you see where the psalmist calls attention to God's changeless character. And so we're going to look at it in those three sections. So the first thing we're going to look at is, is his honesty before the Lord. And it's in verses 1 through 11. And if you did your homework on day 5, you remember this part. You maybe memorized it and you're maybe going to like post it on Instagram or something. No, don't. I do not recommend that. You're not going to bring people to Jesus if you post this. I'll promise you that. Um, Follow along with me if you have your Bibles open. I'm just going to read it, and then we're going to pause. The psalmist starts this way. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the days of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Verse 3. For my days pass away like smoke. And my bones burn like a furnace, and my heart is struck down like grass, and it has withered. I forgot to eat my bread because my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. Pretty painful so far, right? He goes on. Verse 6. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. Verse 8, all the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Verse 10, because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Aren't you glad you came? <laughs> Here's the thing, guys. Um... This is hard to read, isn't it? Th these are the verses that um, when you're doing the Bible reading plan in the year, you get to this section, you're like, I will be skipping this part, right? We want to skip this part, don't we? But here's what I think we have to remember. Lots of us in this room 
are in this part. And if you're not in this part, you've probably been here. Or if you haven't, you're probably gonna at some point. And so the honesty of the psalmist before the Lord, it's, it's tough to take, but it's beautiful because we can be honest before God. Listen, um, our pain, the psalmist's pain, is not a measure of God's faithfulness. You know, like sometimes I think we feel that way, don't we? We feel like this. We, the psalmist is saying, this is my field of vision. This is what I see. He's saying, I'm sick, I'm sleepless, I'm weak, I'm alone, I'm struck down. You struck me down, God. I'm taunted, I'm cursed, I'm in mourning, I'm in tears. I'm subjected to God's anger. I'm confused, I'm thrown down, I'm temporary, I'm withering away. I don't know if I'm going to survive, Right? That's the pain that he's talking about. But see, the beauty of this is that God's faithfulness doesn't change even in the midst of that pain. Do you you hear that today? I I needed to hear that this week. It's interesting because um, he's so brokenhearted. The landscape he's looking at is, is this. And it's hard. But, you know, I immediately when I read these words, I thought, well, we're in good company You know, Psalm 102 is one of the psalms that many scholars call a messianic psalm. And you know why? Because it is prophetic foretelling of the Messiah that will come. If you read these words and and you hear the heartbrokenness of this, and then rewind and read it again as the voice of Jesus, as the suffering servant who came to die, it's it's pretty interesting how you see um, the correlation here. You know, Jesus, in the right-hand part of your Bible, where he comes and has a ministry that not only is going to show us how to live, but he's going to die for us. He was betrayed in the garden. Do you remember that? Like, he had this ministry. He grew up and had this three-year ministry and had his posse and his guys, and they went around, they healed people and did cool stuff, and then people got real, real mad, and then one of his best friends betrayed him. He was then taken captive. He was then on trial by Pilate. He was then brutally beaten, and we have details of it in the gospel accounts. And and then he was on the cross. And and you know what I think? So many of us, especially when we have Easter approaching, we're going to hear the story of Jesus on the cross and all the things, you know, you hear that over and over. And and I think it's it's fair for us to realize that we get numb to it sometimes, don't we, because we've heard it a lot. Well, the thing I think we need to always remember is think about the words of our psalmist. Think about... Jesus, and remember that he was fully man, fully man, felt and endured every single bit of this. In the garden, Matthew 26, 39, do you remember these words? You've probably heard them before. And going a little farther, he fell on his face praying, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then on the cross, hanging on the cross for everything that we have done. In Matthew 27, verse 46, he says these words. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words that the psalmists is is putting down on paper for us, I know that was painful. I, I know that because I've put words on paper that were painful like this before. Have you? 
these prayers are painful, aren't they? But this is the beautiful thing is that our God in heaven loves us so much that he is not defined by these words, y'all. That he loves us so much that he sent his son to come to this earth who suffered alongside us and suffered more than we could ever imagine on our behalf. That is overwhelming to me. So when I oftentimes let my life be defined by the pain, let my life be defined by verses 1 through 11, I have to mentally decide I'm going to shift to what I know. And what I know is that I have a God that even when I feel like he's forsaken me, he never has because he sent Jesus to this earth to identify with my brokenness. Your Savior identifies with your brokenness. Whatever your verse 1 through 11 is, he identifies with it, and he's with you in the midst of it. No matter what you feel, he's there. Verses 12 through 22, our psalmist changed the story a little bit. You know, the first 11 verses are rough and bumpy and hard to listen to. And then he moves and he changes here. And he moves us to this place of saying basically um, that the name of God is our orientation. Okay? So watch for it when you hear me read the words. It's like the first section he was saying, this is where I am, verses 1 through 11. And now he's moving it to say, but in spite of it all. Okay? Verse 12 starts with two words. What are the two words verse 12 starts with? But you. It's, it's the turning point. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. Okay, I have to say something else. Hold on, pause. Did you notice in verse 12 he doesn't say, okay, now all those other things, I don't feel those things anymore? He doesn't say, well, now I can sleep. And now I understand, and now I'm not struggling, and now my enemies aren't chasing me, so now I can praise you. He doesn't say that at all, because we need to praise him where we are, and that's what the psalmist is showing us. And so he starts, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all the generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. He goes into a whole section about Zion here, and I'm going to talk about it in just a minute. But just listen to what he's saying. He says, it is the time to favor her, Zion. The appointed time has come for your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Verse 15, nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion, he appears in his glory. Verse 17, he regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Amen. Anybody love that? You need to put a star around that one. Verse 18, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created, again, that would be us, may praise the Lord. Verse 19, that he looked down from his holy height and from heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise. Verse 22, when the people gather together the kingdoms to worship the Lord. Y'all, I love the fact that he's talking about us here. He's saying, all of these things I'm going through, write them down because I need everyone to see and know that despite the fact that I'm dealing with this, but God... In spite of it all, but God, the name of God restores orientation. Verse 11, 1 through 11, this is where I am. Verse 12, but in spite of it all, there's this change in outlook we see by the psalmist. And so he focuses on what he knows, not what he felt. 
in verses 1 through 11. He says in verse 17, you hear me. We can trust the fact that God hears us. And he goes on to talk about um, Zion. You know, what you can say here, if you're looking at verse 13 through about verse, I don't know, 20, 19, 20, you can, uh, 21, you can say this, that God keeps promises. He keeps promises. And the psalmist knows this. You know, in, in spite of where he is in this moment, how broken he is, he is saying here, this is who you are, this is who you were, and this is who I know you will be. A little side note about the word Zion. You can know this, that it is the name of the temple mount in Jerusalem. And so at the time when this is written, okay, the first temple that was built is, is destroyed. And, and there's a second temple, and then that was destroyed. Anyway, but, but what's happening at this moment is there's nothing Right now, it is, as you saw him refer to, it is dust that they are holding the stones dear and they have pity on them because the temple is dust. And so what they know, what the psalmist knows, is that God has promised the temple will be rebuilt. They have no idea what he's talking about, but they know that he's a promise keeper. And I love that the psalmist calls to mind, like, there's times, I don't know about y'all, but there, I don't pray like real eloquent like that, but there's times when I pray and I'll be like, hey, you know what? I know this about you, God, and I'm going to call you on that. That is a promise. And I think that he appreciates that because it's calling to mind the things that I know and not always relying on the things that I feel. Orientation. You know, um, I've, I've said this before, like when I think of the name of God and the orientation that he brings, I think of stillness, you know, like he's unchanging. Have we established that yet? I think all the psalmists are telling us over and over that he is unchanging even when our circumstances are changing. Well, I thought about, um, obviously, a, a, a wheel. I mean, because who doesn't, right? But, but here's the thing. I thought we all need a dirty visual. It's very dirty, I would like to tell you. Um, but here's the deal. Just bear with me for a minute with our little preschool lesson. But I want to sh show you. The crazy thing about the name of God being our orientation is that it is still and never changing. And God doesn't sway back and forth like our circumstances. And, you know, I think about my circumstances like spokes on a wheel, you know. So, like, when the wheel is turning, like, all these crazy things are going on. Like, here's my kids freaking out. Here's my, you know, our health going down the toilet. Here's, here's, oh, here's some financial stability. It's going out the window. Oh, oh, there's a car wreck. You know, all kinds of stuff, right? Diagnosis, divorce, broken relationships. You know, I joke, but this is the way our lives look, right? Like, there's so much stuff swirling around. It's noisy, isn't it? It's busy and loud. And yet, if there wasn't an axis on the wheel, it would not turn. Somehow, my hand is not spinning and breaking and bloody because I'm holding a still axis that never changes. And I think that sometimes we forget because what we do, instead of relying on the still axis that is God, we rely on the stuff that's spinning around, don't we? Like, I do that all the time. I'm like, okay, is God good? Well, let me see how much stuff is spinning around. Well, no, he's not good right now. And meanwhile, he, he has never changed. I'm the one who has changed. My orientation has changed. I'm focusing on the stuff instead of the still axis that supports everything. I don't know. What about you? Do you recognize the fact that God's name alone restores orientation I needed to know that this week. I, um, I had you in homework go to one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's a real tiny baby one that you have to look it up in the, 
in the table of contents unless you're, you know, just real super Bible smart, which I'm not. So I look it up. Habakkuk is, and that's how you pronounce it. Sounds smart when you go to breakfast later, be like, I'm totally studying Habakkuk. It's like really cool Old Testament Bible, I mean, Bible chapter. Um, Nobody will care, but it's really small little one. And I had you go there for a minute, if you remember, but I, you know why I love it? Um, I love it because Habakkuk is me. Well, I'm not a prophet or anything, but here's what he is. He was watching the world falling apart. And so you know what he did in verses, I mean, chapters one and two, you know what he did? Ready? Not that you do this. I won't make direct eye contact. I'll look high. He starts telling God how to do stuff because he's got the better plan. Honestly, I feel him, you know, oftentimes I feel like I need to sit God down and go, so this is how this should go, you know, and you, you know, and we're laughing, but you know, we do that, don't we? We pray a certain way. We expect a certain thing. And when our wheel doesn't stop turning the way we think it should, we get really mad at him. And all of a sudden we decide he is not faithful anymore. Well, Habakkuk did the same thing, but here's what's cool. In, in chapter three, verse 17 and following, he does this thing and, and you read it in your homework, but I'm gonna jot it down again because I want you to go back and revisit it. Chapter three, verse 17. This is where Habakkuk turns the corner. You know, he was mad at God, telling God how to do stuff. And then all of a sudden he, this is what's crazy about this story is um, it's not like at the end of chapter three, things are going to go well. It's basically God has said, you know what? You think things are bad now? It's about to get worse. About to get worse. How is that for good news? But in the midst of what he knows to be great destruction coming, this is what Habakkuk does. He starts listing out all the, cha- all the verse one through 11 stuff. He says this, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. For him, that's, that's verses 1 through 11. That's your spinning wheel. I don't know if you have fig trees or, you know, produce on vines or, or things in stalls, but for him, this was everything. This was life. Life was wrecked. It was verses chapter, chapter 20, uh, 102, verses 1 through 11. That's what it was. And, and so he starts it out with the word though. And, and this is where the cool part happens. In verse 18, he says this. At the very end of this whole Bible book. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. He goes in to say, though I'm dealing with all of this stuff, yet I will rejoice in you. Not because you changed it. I, I read this over the summer, and you know what I did? I, I thought this was so smart. It may not be, but you might like it. I got in my journal, and I wrote, though. And then I made like a T chart, okay? And then on the other side of though, I wrote, yet. And, and, and I sat down. And I started writing out my verses 1 through 11, all the complaints, because I felt overwhelmed by all the awful things that were happening in my life that day. It was one of those days, guys, you know the days, some of you may be having one right now, where your heart's beating so fast and you're sweating all the time and everything you do, you've got a stomach ache and you look every direction and everything is, is crashing and falling apart and you're like, there is not going to be anything on the other side of this. It was one of those days. And so the those side of my little table was rich, <laughs> I just was writing every complaint I could think, though this, though that, all the things are happening. This is my life. This is dumb. I don't like this. I hate this, all these things. And then I moved over to the other column. 
And I saw yet, and I thought, I don't know, God. I don't know if I can rejoice right now. And, and so I said, you know, one of my silly little prayers, like, okay, God, <clears throat> if you want me to write some stuff, you're going to have to come up with it because I got nothing. And y'all, the yet started coming. Though I'm in the midst of, of heartbreak because of a broken relationship, yet you're reminding me that I've got so many people around me that love me and that you never leave me and you never fail me, even when people do. Though people in my house are broken right now and sad and I can't fix it, yet you are the one who can. I got to let go of it. Though, and it went on and on and on. And I'm telling you guys, it sounds, I don't know what it sounds, but it's a real thing when you start changing your orientation to look at him instead of looking at the spinning things going on. You know how many times I've gone back to that page in my journal? I have a sticky tab at the top of it so I can flip to it really fast because I forget. I go back to, to worrying about all the things that are spinning and I forget the yet. Well, the psalmist doesn't forget the yet. He orientate, orientate, wrong word. He orients himself, understanding that the name of God is the only way to be focused. Your God alone, nothing added to God, but your God alone restores orientation. I love that. I love that in the midst of his pain and crying out, he sees that and tells us that. Well, the last section kind of goes with this, where he's changed the orientation and helped us understand that, um, that we can trust God and that he can be our steady, still place. But then in verses 23 through 28, he, he, he mic drops, doesn't he? He brings it home because he talks about this is who you are, God. So he said, this is where I am. He said, but in spite of it all, and now he's saying, and this is who you are. So listen for him talking to God. He starts in verse 23 like this. He has broken my strength in mid-course and he has shortened my days. And then he says, oh my God, I say, take not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout the generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. And then notice there's a verb shift, okay? See the verb change, the tense? They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Guys, if there's nothing that you trust about God, will you trust that he is an unchanging God? That the character of God is eternal and never, ever changes? The God of the psalmist is your God today. He's our God today. The psalmist takes us these places. He says, don't take me away in the midst of my days. It's almost like, remember earlier he was saying, my days are short, my bones are dust, I'm wearing away, I'm like a piece of grass, remember all that? Well, now he's saying, but you know what? I want to hold on. Keep me here, God. In verse 26, he changes the verb tense to will. He's declaring the changeless character of God. Get this, get this. Without seeing the finished work. Do you see that? It's not dependent upon something God has done. He's saying you will do it. You will keep the promises. 
It's true, and that's, that's real hope and faith, you know? Like, people can say, I just have faith and have hope, and, you know, you're like, okay, that's, thank you, very helpful. But remember this, true faith, true hope is having trust in something you haven't even seen yet, and that's what the psalmist is doing. You know, um, this particular passage, a portion of this passage, is repeated in the New Testament. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Um, The book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews quotes this section and he's talking about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, and you don't have to flip there. I'm going to read it to you, but just jot it down. This is how it begins, okay? Chapter 1 begins this way, verses 1 through 4. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's us, y'all. Like we are in the, these days. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He was there at the beginning in Genesis 1. He's here now. Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, our sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He alone is God. In Hebrews 1, chapter 10 and 13, if you jump down, that's where you see this section quoted. You see, he says this, And you, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Anything sound familiar? They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? You see, Jesus alone is God himself. I do not know what you believe about him. I do not know what you believe about the the moving, changing, loud, noisy, crazy circumstances that your life is going through, the spinning wheel of your life. I do not know, but I know this. Those two words that started this section, but you, can change everything. The beetles can come devour trees, but you. The landscape may never, ever, ever be the same in Colorado, but you, I don't know what your life looks like. Illness may have ravaged your hopes and dreams, but you, divorce may have destroyed your confidence and your trust in people, but you, struggle may have sucked you under and you don't see a way out, but you. Loneliness may have convinced you that you are unlovable and unworthy, but you, you may have wandered away from what you know about God because what you feel about your life is overwhelming, but you, you have an unchanging intercessor. Do you realize that? Like you, me, forget the psalmist for a minute. This is to us. That we have an unchanging intercessor that we know is sitting at the right hand of God on our behalf and the behalf of our changing landscape, even as our wheels are spinning. Well, it's a lot to take in, right? Like, 
it's a lot. And I know I can see your faces. And I know that a lot of us are in heavy places. But I love that he brought us here today because we will not back down from this. We will face it because we understand who God is. We can understand what our problems are and our pains are. We can understand that. But we will know and rely and trust on the one still axis that never changes. Even when we don't feel like it. Well... In closing, you know, I talked about that landscape change and my limited field of vision. You know, all I saw were the dead trees. And, you know, we talked about that last week. Isn't it the way it goes sometimes? Sometimes when, when bad things are happening and struggles are overtaking us, that is all we see, right? It's like a shadow. It just covers everything. Well, I, a couple years ago when I went back to Colorado on one of my trips, I was hiking with my brother. Y'all always hear me talk about my crazy mountain brother, Steve. My mom's not here today. He's the crazy one in our family. He's a mountain man. He is the coolest person ever. Um, but he lives there in Breckenridge, and we were hiking, and I was walking, you know, and trying not to stand under dead trees, and he just, I just looked up, and I was like, man, this just kills me. That breaks my heart. I hate this. You know, it's all these dead trees everywhere. And he goes, no, you're looking at this all wrong. I'm like, okay, tell me, what, what am I missing? And he said, the beetles have been here as long as the trees have been here. You know, this cycle has gone on as long as the tree groves have gone on. There's nothing new. That's a little Ecclesiastes for you. Nothing new. This is the ongoing thing. He said the kill is temporary, and often it gives way to new and different life. You know, unexpected patches of sunshine now grow up aspen groves in those places where the trees have been cleared. Did you know that? I didn't know that. My brother showed me his yard and said, do you see those aspen trees? They never existed in my yard before the deadfall, before I moved all the dead. And then, you know, you think about this, like the shady spots where the pine straw was, now they're covered with like green mosses and grasses and wildflowers. Things that have never grown there before are growing now because all these trees have died and fallen and been burned. And, and you know something that's been fascinating to me, and I've been obsessed with this. I've, I'm not going to lie. I think I'm pretty smart about uh, b- b- plant botany. Oh, wait, that's, that's redundant, isn't it? <laughs> also, I'm not smart. But the Internet is very smart. Did you know the word serotiny? I don't know if I'm, I'm probably saying that wrong. S-E-R-O-T-I-N-Y. Anybody know what that means? This will blow your minds. Ready? This is the process of adaption that some plants go through to release seeds in response to an environmental trigger. What that means to those of us who didn't got to get it off the internet, pine cones. Pine cones don't go into action until they, they encounter some sort of environmental trigger like fire. You know that pine cones are covered in some sort of wax that protects the seeds and the only way the seeds are released is when they're fired and it's melted. And so that's why um, these trees, like you, if you'll ever drive through an area that's been burned out, you'll notice those, those lodgepole pines, there's like little baby ones everywhere. And you're like, how is this happening? It's because the minute the fire hits, the seeds are released and they start growing and they grow fast because now there's no shade. And so all of a sudden, what I saw as destruction God's taken and said, no, you just watch. I'm about to do cool things that you could never imagine. I'm going to grow things up that you could never imagine in the midst of the ashes of what you thought you wanted it to stay like. Things that are more magnificent than we could ever imagine. I don't know what your landscape looks like, but changing landscapes is not a bad thing. 
What dead fall are you trying to preserve while God is actively changing your landscape for the better? You know, if it were up to me, I would have propped them bad boys up and tried to put tree medicine on them and make them stay forever. And God's all the while is like, yeah, but I want aspens to grow. What area of your life do you have a limited field of vision where you are relying on the spinning circumstances for your stability and security? Because guess what? I got, I got, let me spoil alert. That will not be firm foundation because it will be moving and changing. And one minute you think everything's balanced and everybody's healthy and everybody's getting along and somebody's got a job and I'm married. and Okay, we're good, we're good. God, this is great. We're gonna just, and then two seconds later, you breathe in and breathe out and everything changes, amen? But God does not. This is where you are. In spite of it all, he is still the same. Your savior identifies with your brokenness, the name of God will alone restore orientation and you have an unchanging intercessor that sits at the right hand of God. More than explaining or understanding, we need to trust the fact that his presence in the midst of what we're going through alone is what matters. Does it matter to you? I'm going to pray and then um, you guys can go talk about all this stuff with your best friends. So pray with me. Father, um, this is hard truth, man. It's hard to read these words. We want to come in here and read the fluffy um, prosperity gospel-y things, right? But you want us to understand that you get us every chair, every story, you know every deep, dark detail, even the ones we try to, to, to put makeup on and, and, and pretty shoes and pretend like they don't exist. God, you know every detail and you're present in the midst of it and you love us in spite of it. God, um, I pray for reminders of that today. I pray that we can focus on the still axis instead of the spinning crazy things that are going to always happen this side of heaven. Lord, um, show us where to focus today. Remind us who you are and remind us of your son and how he came to live and die for us. I don't ever want to miss that. We love you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.